I'm here with Fanny Dutoy from the Transformation Initiative, who is a veteran, uh, experienced mediator working uh, in the region on the Myanmar issue for a very long time. Fanny, perhaps you could tell us just how you got involved in the mediation in Myanmar and what is your specific background? Right. So thank you. I did a theology degree originally and then a political uh, studies degree at UCT. Got involved with uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission South Africa as a volunteer during its time in operation. And then after that, ISIS, the war on ISIS, and the theme was the reintegration of communities scattered across the country, about 5 million people displaced. I also, you know, through throughout these years, I did from time to time collaborate with ITI, uh, at 2018, I was approached by Rolf Meyer following the request to him by uh, Do Ansang Su Chi from Myanmar to begin a dialogue process in the Rakhine province, which is the hotbed of the ethno-religious conflict in Myanmar preceding the coup. Rolf had been on an advisory commission for, uh, that, that uh, sought to implement the Kofi Annan report that was issued on um, the Rakhine problem. He then uh, saw the need for community dialogue in the Rakhine province and uh, on that basis approached me as, um, as an implementing lead from on behalf of ITI. And for quite a long time you were actually living in Myanmar um, and has been working also in, in the refugee camps. Yeah, uh, I mean, I would, uh, we certainly visited some of the refugee camps, or, or uh, let me rather say the IDP camps, not so much right. the refugee camps in uh, Cox's Bazaar and Bangladesh. Rule visited them. I was not part of that delegation, but I have seen the IDP camps in, in the internally displaced people in Rakhine, of which there are many tens of thousands. Constantly new, new IDPs are created. But I lived in Yangon um, considerable periods of 2019 and 2020, and even up to yeah, up to the um, the, the uh, COVID lockdown, I was in Yangon, based in Yangon. So you know, got to know the country you know modestly well. Right. Perhaps you could give us a sense of what your work actually entails there. You are you facilitating, mediating? Who are the the main role players? What what are you trying to achieve? So unlike the work I did in Iraq, which was very UN-based, this is not through the UN. This is advising, as technical advisor, a group of NGOs, uh, quite uh, influential local civic organizations that are implementing this community dialogue program in Rakhine. And I am the lead implementer from a technical point of view. That means I look at the, the aims of the program, what is realistic and also make sure that the, the staff on the program, there's about 10 to 15 people, local Myanmar people who are working with me, that they are adequately trained and supported in the work that they do. So the, the project has a couple of layers, if you like. It, it's, it's the technical um, leads like myself and others in the middle. Then you have the local NGOs who provide the programmatic support they work with community facilitators and the community facilitators enable what we call local peace committees or 
ESPDs, Committees for Sustainable Peace Development of Community Volunteers. You know, it's like a concentric circles uh, of influence that we really hope, and I think we have reason to believe, really reach the actual people living in these communities and reach the right kind of leaders within those communities. Uh, you know, the conflict there, and why is there a need for these peace committees? Well, um, the International Court of Justice, that is hearing the case that was brought by the, the Gambia on behalf of the uh, Organization for Islamic Cooperation, and therefore on behalf of, let's say, Muslims worldwide, case against Myanmar is a case of genocide. The court itself has said it cannot rule out genocide. And I think that's a responsible position to take. I think it's too early to prove intention to destroy in part or whole the Rohingya Muslim, which is what genocide definition in international law is. And it's the difficulty is with proving the intent to destroy in part or you know, as a whole that group of people. However, what I think there's much less debate over and much less certainty about is the fact that it was in fact a crime against humanity which is, uh, or ethnic cleansing, which is basically a systematic, the Rohingya people that involved burning their villages, um, uh, gross acts of violence, uh, murder, and in some cases, sexual violence as well, which then led to the fleeing of some 700,000 of these Muslims into neighboring Bangladesh. But the fact is another five or 600,000 have stayed behind. So it's the, the term itself, genocide, uh, is a is still not yet. We're not sure that's the adequate term, but that it was a grave violation of human rights. And so now you set up these peace committees. Of which communities are we talking about? Who are these volunteers? Let me just also say that, and this will explain partly who these people are, is that the Tatmado, the army there, the military that's now taken over the country has this notorious four cuts policy, which means when they attack one of the outlying regions of Myanmar, um, and there are 125 ethnic groupings around the majority Burmese people in these outlying areas, and that's where the majority of the violence uh, takes place, they have what they call the four cuts policy. It's cutting funding, food, intelligence, and recruits from these armed insurrections. So, you know, in Rakhine, that is what the Tatmadaw did as well and aimed to do. And so the devastation that such a policy leaves is profound. The pressure on communities when funding is cut to everybody, when uh, food is cut, when the internet is blacked out, when anybody that's vaguely suspected of any association with an armed insurrection is uh, summarily detained and sometimes never comes back. It's a massive polarization that takes place. And the polarization in Rakhine province is mainly between uh, Muslims, Muslim community that are two, two in two, uh, two parts. The one is the Kaman Muslims who, were, who are recognized as indigenous soldiers to the previous Rakhine king. And then there are the so-called Rohingya Muslims. Now, the Rohingya Muslims, there's a, they came in waves across the border. And there's no telling when most of them arrived, but certainly not yesterday. You know, they came partly as the British, part of the British expansion, the colonization project, part of the Second World War, the fighting that happened. Some were there 
because of ancient trade. So to try and unravel that, unscramble that omelette is almost impossible. But the local Buddhist people called the Rakhine, they are a very important constituency. And then the Rohingya Muslim also form a very important constituency. And then there is a sizable Hindu minority, in, especially in the north of um, Mongdo, which is the northernmost uh, township, and several other smaller mi minorities, including some Christian minorities from the Chin, Chin people that are slightly to the north of Rakhine. And, and so what we do is when we get these committees together, we're asking for credible leaders. And by credible, we mean they must enjoy this, the support of, of their constituency. They need to be um, known to not be extremists. That means they must be willing to work and acknowledge the right of others, to work with others. And we want roughly 50-50 men and women in there. We want young people represented. We want all the ethnic groups on these committees. Uh, and then once we have a, a long list uh, of names, we then uh, consult the communities again to say exactly who on this list would you like to see on this committee. And it's quite a long process, three to four months, to actually get the right people on these committees that, that enjoy the trust of of their respective constituents. And then these committees do activities uh, that are not, I mean, sports events. I remember you said at one point they were actually also doing COVID-19 awareness programs and so on. Yes. Uh, so it's interesting that, you know, our larger social goals, in, you know, in South Africa as well, ones like reconciliation and justice, social justice, are often not best promoted by directly talking about that event or that goal, but by implementing practical measures that benefit the community in such a way that indirectly these goals are increased. So, for example, if the community has a, has a huge need for livelihoods, livelihood and job creation and so on, then to create a common job creation project that Muslim and Buddhist communities are cooperating seems to be a very effective way of enhancing trust and cooperation. And, you know, we've started, we asked them, what is the first thing they want to do together? And they said, we want to clean up our, our town. Our town is a, is a pit and we just want to clean this place up. And so they started, they rolled up their sleeves. Thousands of people were in the streets. This is a war-torn area. This is the epicenter of where the Muslims were driven out. Now you had Muslims and Buddhists and everybody rolling up their sleeves, school children assisting. The requisite trust on either side to explain what this COVID thing is, and people didn't trust them. And so it was our committees who then said, but we, we have access to that, our, you know, to the Muslims and the Buddhists work through us. And so the committees became, in the areas where we work, one of the main dispensers of information and also of masks and sanitizer and so on in the early stages of COVID and really demonstrated to the communities the value of having a common framework that is trusted by the people in a, in a place where trust is so so in short supply on every level. Even the government or the security forces are seen as, as party to the conflict. And so, you know, who do you trust? Where is, and, and so this committee became, became that focal point for, and now during the coup, where everything is seemingly falling apart in a way, it's, uh, we thought maybe we can't proceed with this project, but the committees, the communities were extremely adamant that 
they want this is all they have now in a sense you know they they even have less to fall back on now than they had under the previous dispensation and so you know they they are very keen for these organizations for these committees to to continue mm-hmm. that sounds uh, like it's been successful in that way then if the if that can hold up how many of these peace committees are we talking about so we have at the moment six of them and they are in six hotspots two in the north two in the south and then one in the center, uh, sorry, three in the south and one in the center. Um, and they will, we had big plans to expand much more drastically this year, also beyond Rakhine into other parts of Myanmar. But of course that was all put paid by the uh, coup. Um, but you know, I mean, the, the scope, the reach of these committees are quite important. We just did a survey in December on, on their views on the COVID, how COVID is being handled. And with just like that, we had 4,000 people participating, you know, in these, in four communities. So the knock-on effect is, is quite large uh, and we reach quite a number of people quite quickly through these committees. Yeah. Did you, while you were there these last couple of months and so on, before the coup, did you sense that the pressure was so much, the tension, you know, on a government level? I mean, did people expect this military coup to happen or was it completely unexpected? You know, Lisa, I was talking to one of the probably the most uh, foremost analysts in Myanmar uh, um, the Saturday afternoon at lunchtime about the likelihood of a coup because there had been some saber rattling that week only before the coup. Mm-hmm. And I remember him saying to me, you know, we are now heading away from a coup. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And then Sunday happened and Monday morning, 3 a.m. the coup happened. It was just about everybody was caught off guard. But nobody could think that the, that the military that has basically scripted this transition could so radically just throw it out of the window after so many years of investing in it and so on. But I think the key to understanding this is the fact that the military precisely thought that they would stay in charge of this process. And the final elections, Aung San Suu Kyi was so successful, you know, she had a runaway election result that that scared the Tafmada. That showed to them that give her another term and she may, she may take the, the country completely away from it. Even now, there's a sense that the genius out of the bottle in terms of you know, cell phones and what people can pick up online and the experience of a bit of freedom and having a credit card and being able to travel and that they just, especially young people, don't want to go back. And I think the, the military's calculation was this process has gone far enough now. This, this country is no longer under as we thought would be under our control. And so uh, we need to step in. I mean, as you say, with the young people, that is what the international community or us as spectators who really don't know much about the situation really impressed us. And what was so surprising is the determination and the courage of ordinary people just to go into the streets and risk their lives. Is that your sense as well, that ordinary people in Myanmar are just simply refusing to accept this military rule? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It reminds me a lot of uh, some of the moments of struggle against apartheid as well. 
and the ingenuity with which young people are discrediting the military, you know, in ways that are just so cutting to the bone, you know, they are very clever at just showing the military up for the dictators that they are in many ways reminiscent of, you know, our movements in the 70s and 80s that that gradually discredited the apartheid regime to a point where nobody could take them seriously anymore. And I think that that, that is also happening. But the difference here is the apartheid regime was at the end willing to negotiate. And there's no indication whatsoever that the military even has a pretense in that direction at this point. As long as they're being sponsored by China and Russia, they're two big sponsors, there's little chance of them budging. And there's also little chance of the public budging on this. So it, it doesn't it, it does not look it does not look very promising at this point in terms of the, the larger picture. Is there anything that the international community can do? Uh, I mean, there are sanctions, there's the region that sends envoys and so on. Could they put pressure then on China and Russia to stop supporting the military rulers? I mean, is that is that the first prize for the international community? I would say so. I would say so. But as you know, the realities of our uh, superpower dominated world uh, and international relations, I think that path may well run via Washington, actually, because I don't think I mean, you know, China has much of a history or track record of listening to civil society, nor really does Russia. So, but they would take seriously a fellow superpower and on on arguments of mutual interest. And if it can be shown that this is not in their interest for this to further deteriorate, that they will have a, and, and, and of course they know this, but, you know, there are arguments for and against. So to make an argument against support, one would have to be very com compelling about, you know, what would happen in a case of a failed state in Myanmar in terms of Chinese interests. As, you know, they've got the Belt and Road Initiative that they aiming to run right through Myanmar towards um, the gas fields in this Bay of Bengal. You know, there's vast narco-trafficking happening on the border there with China. Um, you know, there are armed groups, there are, by the last count, I don't know if it's between 20 and 30 armed armies, essentially, running around the country, they would become a, a DRC, you know, of Southeast Asia. And is that really in China's interest? And what would that look like for China? So I think China has made the calculation at this point that, the, and I, you know, I'm very far away from Beijing, but it looks to me like they've made the calculation that um, that supporting the, the military is the best way to contain or, or to ensure stability. But one has to take the argument a step further and say, well, what about tomorrow and the day after? Maybe it's not the best way. And I think that's the, that's the best way for, for China to be approached. Unfortunately, so it's not about protecting human rights and, and so on. I mean, those arguments don't work. It's all the geopolitics, really. Well, you know, I mean, I, I, I hate to say it won't work because that's what I've spent my life doing. But, you know, if you look at China's policy with the Uyghurs, the Uyghur Muslim community, even if you look at what India is now, the legislation that India has passed on Muslim communities, you know, it seems that the region is not very Muslim friendly, despite the fact that 
Malaysia is part of the region, despite the fact that Bangladesh is part of the region, despite the fact that you know there's so many Muslims everywhere. Uh, um, I don't know if human rights will be effective. I think the most, as we've seen incidentally in the mm -hmm. summit that we saw yesterday between Putin and um, mm -hmm. uh, Biden, I think that uh, enlightened self-interest uh, strategic uh, uh, arguments are the ones that will make most sense to the superpowers. And I think that's what needs to be lobbied in places like Washington and uh, Brussels and, and so on maybe also Australia, maybe Japan. Incidentally, I think Japan has a big role to play also. I think Japan has a history of being a colonial power there. They've also got some people, some influential people that are quite close to the, to the military leaders in, in Myanmar. And they've got, of course, their uh, investment power, you know, that they could sway. So there is also, um, but of course, for China and Japan to cooperate, you would have to overcome a lot of historical difficulty. Thank you very much, Fani. We've actually run out of time. And just a final question. Now, where does that leave your peace committees and ITI's role there if this conflict drags out over time? Um, do you think you can continue working? Um, or or what, where, where does that leave you, basically? It's very important to make this point that ITI will do nothing that will try that will make the regime look good you know we don't regard the the military juntas as legitimate they are uh, criminals um it's an illegitimate regime so we will not be supporting their regime we've taken a very uh firm stance on that and we will also not be uh doing anything that will make them look good but at the same time you know during the time that we've been in in Myanmar, we've made friends. We have, we have built relationships and those people are in trouble. Uh, to walk away from them, I think would be as bad as to make the regime look good, quite frankly. And so what ITI has decided is not to engage NAPIDU in any, which is the capital in any shape or form, but to, in, to remain engaged with our local committees and remain conflict, conflict sensitive and do our political analysis quite thoroughly that we make sure that inadvertently we don't um, strengthen the regime, but at the same time, we, we, we think that com uh, resilient communities on the ground are never a bad thing. And we would be continuing to work with them for the time being until such time that something better comes along for them. Thank you very much. Thank you.